Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. And today, I have the privilege of introducing you to Megan Chance. So Megan, say hi to the listeners. Hello. Hello. We are so happy to have you here. Megan, tell us just a little bit about yourself and let's start out with what state in the Northwest you live in. I live in Washington State, right across the sound from Seattle, a ferry ride away. And I've lived here for a while. Nice. I love the ferry ride. It's one of my favorites. (laughs) I know. It's very nice. For a long time, I commuted and that ride was a lovely way to decompress after the Oh, yeah. I always envision that. We don't live in Seattle, but we've been on that ferry plenty. My husband used to work in Seattle and I didn't have to commute. So I always dreamt about commuting with the ferry. So then I could sit back and read and not have to drive and you get that little bit of time, right? Before That was the best part about it is being yeah. able to just read. Yeah. And relax and stuff. Yeah. And on a beautiful day, you'd go outside and yeah, it would be great. Wonderful. So you alluded just a second that you're not commuting anymore. Was that because of COVID or are you currently a full-time author? I'm currently a full-time author. I actually started being a full-time author when my oldest daughter was born. So that she's 25 now. That's fantastic that you're still doing it too. That's very cool. I love it. What did you do prior? It was a day job before the writing job. I started out as a video news uh, photographer for different stations around Seattle. And then I quit doing that because I wanted to be a writer and there just wasn't a lot of time involved in that. So I started working for a commercial photographer and yeah, I was his studio manager. So I did that for about 12 years and he had a studio up on Capitol Hill and and that was where I was working and commuting from. Mostly that was when we moved over to the side of the water. I love photography. I have a very good friend. She's in Seattle as well. And she's a photographer. And I love photography. I'm not the best photographer at all. And I don't understand lighting and all that stuff. But but yeah, I think it's one of the best artistic expressions besides writing. (laughs) So it's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a great photographer either, actually. (laughs) My sister, for example, is much better than I am. I'm really a, a writer. That's really where my talent has always been. You landed where you needed to be. As authors, we're often told, or we hear this all the time, you have to be pretty avid readers. And as I'm looking at your bookshelf behind you, I think that's pretty evident. My bookshelves aren't up, so... (laughs) This is just my office, too. Uh, This isn't my house, I mean... Oh, I love it. I love it. So currently, what are you reading? My listeners love to hear what authors are reading. It gives them some more to add to their reading list. Right now I'm reading a book called The Translator by John Crowley. I guess it's an old book. It's one of his old books. But I saw Nancy Pearl recommend it on her Twitter feed. And it looked really interesting to me about a translator working with a Russian poet who had been exiled. And it takes place in 1961 around the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh And I'm actually loving it. And I'd never heard of it before, though I'd read John Crowley before. Mm-hmm. So I'm reading that right now and really loving it. And I have Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell sitting there ready to go. And Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light is sitting there ready to go. <laughs> so you and have a stack. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have a huge stack. 
It's Evan. If you guys can see her bookshelf, and this is just her office, it's like my dream bookshelf. So (laughs) my husband and I are starting an office build for me, which will break ground. It's going to be off of the house. So currently my office is in-house. And it's one little room off of everything else. And I'm like, the podcast has grown. I work full-time at home, plus the podcast I'm trying to write and doing online courses for authors. So I'm like, I need my own space. And so he's going to be building me one starting this like within weeks. And I specifically said, all the extra wall space has to be bookshelves. <laughs> There's windows and bookshelves. all I want in there. And he's like, all right, we're going to do it. <laughs> so I'm That's what this excited. is. Yeah. And it's so cool. What I love about my office, it's not in the house, it's in the backyard. And yeah. it's the same thing. It's all windows and bookshelves. And everything in here is exactly what I put here. I you love know, it. So there's, yeah, there's nothing in here that isn't something I want to be here. So it's um, my favorite place. So excited because that's my inspiration too. It's that's it. I'm going to have a wood fire stove, a little teeny wood fire stove. It's a glorified cheese shape, basically. I'm so excited. I'll be doing pictures on my social media as we start going because I've been telling people about this because it's been a dream come true. We saved money to do this. It's not like there's a lot of money floating around these days. And so we saved it up. And so I'm pretty excited. But anyways, let's get back to you. Megan, you've been a full-time writer for 25 years, which is awesome. My dream is to be a full-time writer in the future. But did you always know you were a writer? Did it happen when you were younger and you grew into it? Or did it just land upon you? Tell us that story. I actually knew and announced that I was going to be a writer when I was about six years old. Oh, I love it. Was, it. Yeah, it was either that or a drum majorette. But I'm really clumsy. I have no talent and I could not spin or catch a baton. So it was obviously going to be the writer. That's fantastic. And they're so opposite. (laughs) I know, really. I I don't know. I just liked the uniforms or something. I don't know. Yeah. But but I was always an avid reader and I spent a lot of time just making up stories in my head. Walk around the yard and just be talking stories to myself. and. And I would do things like I would have an ocean week and I would go to the library and I would check out all the books I could find on the ocean and I would read them all that week. And then the next week would be like prairie week. And I would do that all the time. What ended up happening was that I was this horrifying know-it-all. You know, there was nothing I didn't know. So fantastically described as as kids, right? Yeah. And I still am terrible. It's just terrible. But it was just like I was in training for it really my whole life. And then when I went to church as a kid and I asked to be taken out of Sunday school so I could sit in the main sermon because they had those offering envelopes and those pencils. Oh, yeah. I remember those. Yeah. I could sit there and write stories on them and ignore the sermon. I used to use, remember the paper, were they the weekly, like little, Yes. what yeah. were they called? I can't remember. Yeah, I know. But I they know were what, like the little news and what was going to happen in the church yeah. service that day. I wrote all over that when I was a yes. kid. When we weren't caught, I had to sneak it. <laughs> yeah, I did that too. <laughs> and so- when I was in high school too, I had a really great English teacher. And I would write stories and give them to her. And I think and she told me later that she felt that I was beyond what she could teach. Aww. And so she, I know, which was really a nice thing to say, but she set me up with a published author in the town where we lived. And I studied with her once a month. I had an independent Aww. study. 
That's so and, super cool. Yeah, it was super cool. And the high school sent me to Centrum and Port Townsend, mm-hmm. up at Fort Warden. They would do writing workshops and poetry workshops and stuff. And they sent me to a poetry workshop along with a couple other students for, I don't know, I think it was a week or three days or something. I can't remember. But so I was getting a lot of support in high school, a lot of support. Such a miracle because people are told, do something else. Writing can't be your life. You have to find something else when you're in high school. That's wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, it was strange. Actually, when I think about it, it was really cool, but I just assumed everybody got that kind of support. And I, it was coming from There was no one in my family who was any kind of a artist. My dad read a lot and he was a college student and he was working on his dissertation and stuff, but I had no real sort I want. No, but yeah, no example. Yeah. When I found out that S.E. Hinton wrote The Outsiders at 16, that was like, oh, okay, that's, I'm going to do that. I'm going to publish my first book at 16. Which did not happen, by the way. (laughs) So what a beautiful story. That is inspiring to me and to any of my listeners. I think it's so valuable to have mentors in your life. And luckily for you, you had a writer, professional writer, introduced to you early on. I don't think I met a professional author until I was an adult. And that was because I was a librarian. And so I had access to these authors coming in. And I remember the first time we had a library. I'm an adult working in a library and we had a local author coming in to do readings and I was terrified to go to him and watch the readings and everything because I'm like I knew it was something I want to do but I was terrified to say I was a writer at that point and it took me years to go to these readings as a librarian which is hilarious. (laughs) That is hilarious but it is very intimidating if you've never met a writer before the reason I started the podcast because I didn't know anything about the industry and I'm very much introverted and I work from home and I started to ask a lot of authors in our area in my local area that were authors how did you get there and they're like oh this is how I did it and they gave me tips and I'm like these are all such great tips I need to record this and I woke up one day I'm gonna do a podcast super cool let's talk a little bit about the books that you've published or the titles you published and then we're gonna get into your writing process about how you do that process because I have a lot of authors that are budding aspiring or halfway through and it's so good for them to hear from other authors how they um, have done the process so first tell us the titles Okay, my 21st published book comes out in January. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Um, years since you've been writing. Yeah. I, let's see. The I first decided that I was going to write for publication. I was really going to try for it. I think it was in the early 80s. And I had written five full manuscripts. And it took eight years. And this is really working at it, really trying, getting agents, going to writing meetings, entering contests, working hard before I sold. And that was my sixth manuscript. When I think about all the manuscripts I've written, so let's say those five, and I've written in between publishing 21 books, there are books I've written that have not been published. I don't know. I've probably written maybe... 30 novels, probably, something like that. so awesome to me. And (laughs) and honestly, it's inspiring to me because it just keeps reminding me that 
it's not for everybody. It is not this one hit wonder. You write your manuscript and you're lucky to get an agent and it sells and you become, it's so much work behind the scenes and a lot of actual dedication to a manuscript. But in that one, that first manuscript, the second manuscript, third might not be the one that gets published. So that's good news to know because some days I struggle. <laughs> like I'm slagging behind this world that I see on social media. And I'm like, I got to remember that's not the case. <laughs> Yeah. The only thing that you can always be doing is working on something else. Always just be working on something else because then you have less invested in the manuscript that you're trying to sell and get out there and work on. Um, And that's just the easiest way to always do it. Always be have something else. Some of the best advice I've been given lately. So that's really, I might write that on my whiteboard. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Very good. Uh, I like it. Okay. So the writing process for you, for all these manuscripts that have come about, how does it happen? Does an idea drop in your head and, or a character starts speaking to you, or are you inspired by an image or is it different ways? How does it happen? Because you've had a lot. So... (laughs) Ideas are not a problem for me. I get ideas constantly. The problem for me is always, okay, what idea am I going to work on now? I have files and files of ideas and I get them from everything. I think the thing that is so fascinating for me about being alive, just really about the world, is that there's always interesting stuff. There's art, there's, you know, music, there's movies, there's things you read, there's things you hear in the news, listening to radio. It's just always keeping yourself open for these little tidbits that just land. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're just little tidbits. So I I just write them down. And some of those things expand into a bigger idea. Some of them land as a big idea. Some of them, it takes four or five of them to come together in an idea. It's like they're streaming around, playing around. That's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. To me, it's like always exciting. There's always stuff pouring in. And sometimes a story or an idea will sit there for a long time. Like my book, Susanna Morrow, is a Salem witch trial book. And that book sat in my head for about five years before I could figure out exactly what I wanted to do with it. And others like pop up and like, for example, an inconvenient wife. I, that was a dream. I had a dream about a woman being cornered in a stairwell and it just came from that from a dream and from a, a bit of historical research I heard where Doctors were using vibrators on women mm-hmm. in the 19th century to alleviate hysteria. And yeah. at the time when I heard it, I'm like, oh, come on, that cannot be real. <laughs> and then you found out it was, right? And then it was. Yeah. Crazy world we live in. <laughs> yeah. So it's a lot of stuff like that. I get research from other research. I get ideas from other things. History, because I'm a historical novelist, I am constantly getting ideas from things that I'm researching and and I will run across something and go, wow, okay, that's so cool. And then I write it down and put it aside. At which point the process, your process changes all the time. Mm-hmm. And I think as a writer, that's what you've got to remember. Processes are weird and they are demanding and they are never as easy and they're different for everybody. Yeah. For me, the process is essentially, I get this idea and I do research on it. Yay, and research. <laughs> yeah. And for me, I happen to love research. So I can easily go down a rabbit hole for months. In fact, this book I'm working on now, I went down a rabbit hole for 
And, and of course, COVID really helped with that. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> you don't get distracted. And it was like, I didn't really feel like writing and the world was sort of falling apart around me. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So I ended up doing research on a lot of stuff that just went nowhere and had nothing to do with the book ultimately. And sometimes that means I'm flailing off in all kinds of different directions when it comes down to sitting down and figuring out what the book is about. But for me, a lot of the book comes from the research, a lot of the the ways that it fits together. Yeah. For me, the research is really important. And at that point, I sit down, I gather all my notes and I figure out, okay, where do I want this story to go? Gotcha. And I will write a, a free form synopsis. Okay. And Way back in the day, I used to not write synopses because it, I felt like it set stuff in stone for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And then I would get to a point in the book and I'd be like, oh, something happens here. And I would be <laughs> stuck. <laughs> you know, oh, no, I wrote the synopsis. I got to yeah. stop with it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then I decided that I really, that what I do is I know, I know how the book begins. I know a quarter point where everything turns. Mm -hmm. I know a half point where things turn again. And I know the three quarter point where they switch once more. And I may not know the end. Yeah. But I know all through writing that I'm leading towards these points. Yeah. I don't know how I'm going to get there. Yeah. I have no idea. I just know that at a quarter point, I need to be here emotionally with my character or I need, or this thing happens and I know I'm moving towards them. I love it. So that's how I write the book. And generally it gets to about where I get 200 or 300 pages in and I'm stuck and I don't know what I'm doing. And I give it to my critique partner and I go through it. And sometimes I end up throwing all of it away and starting Mm -hmm. over again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then it's start all over again. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll generally keep one or two things that are working, but for example, in Prima Donna, I threw away those first 400 pages, I think six times and started over again with the visitant. I threw out the whole book. I'd I'd written it three times and I threw it all out. Honestly, I'm glad you're saying this because I don't think enough authors will talk about how many times they've rewritten a particular book or a particular story. And it's valuable for readers and other authors that are starting out to know that first draft generally is probably not going to be where you're going to land at the end. It's astonishing that anybody would think they can land with their first draft. That's really the thing. Because you know what? A first draft is a lot of work and and you're trying to figure out the story. I generally view a first draft as, look, this is me just telling the story to myself, just figuring out where it's going. And it's for me to explore all the jumping off points. And what about the characters I like and don't like, which means that everything gets put into it. And it's an exploration thing for me. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Great. Yeah. And then you have a partner, they go through it, and then you continue to write. Is that? Yes. And the thing about it, too, is that I've been doing this for so long that I can fix anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's that famous, I'm paraphrasing, but that famous, uh, it's attributed to Nora Roberts, but you can't fix a blank page. No. So you just have to get something down. Put on there and then go for it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. Okay. So we alluded to several titles. So tell mm-hmm. us which ones are published that listeners can get a hold of off of your website or through Amazon, because I will tell you, they're going to all be going on my read list because I'm a historical fiction writer. 
not published, working on it. Can't help it. I'm a librarian. I started researching. I'm like, there's so many stories that have to be told. <laughs> so, but yeah. so tell us your titles. And then, then we'll talk a little bit about the publishing journey. Let's at least talk about the last two or three books in your publishing journey with that. Let's see the historical fiction, which I think you can get, I think you can get all of it, at least on, at least digitally, is Susanna Morrow, An Inconvenient Wife, The Spiritualist, Prima Donna, Bone River, Inamorata, The Visitant, A Drop of Ink, and the new one is a Splendid Ruin. That's the one that comes out in January. Okay, so every single one of those titles are like intriguing to me. <laughs> I'm just like, every one of them. And so I, we can't obviously go through all of them because I'm dying to know. But I'm just going to get them and read them if I can get access to them. So listeners do the same thing because they all sound like they're right up my alley. So let's talk about this latest book that you have. But before we do that, have you published... Are you self-published? Are you independent? Are you hybrid? Does it depend on the story of how it ends up being published? I've always been traditionally published, but I started out in historical romance. And so my first eight titles are historical romance and all the rights have reverted back to me. So I have self-published those. Mm -hmm. And so those are those are available self-published. They're only available digitally now. I mean, yeah. in ebook form. So I do those. So I run those. So I, I have some experiencing with self-publishing those. That's right. Um, but all the rest is traditional. Fantastic. So you got an agent. Have you stayed with the same agent throughout this process? Or has that been a whole nother part of that journey? <laughs> I knew early on that I was not interested at all in the business side of it, that I didn't want to mess with it, that I wanted somebody else to take care of it for me. Yeah. And so I got an agent right away. It was the first thing I didn't mess with editors. I went right after getting an agent. Mm -hmm. And I got an agent with, I think, really the first, on my first try, my first round of query letters. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, <laughs> it, it was. <laughs> it sounds good, right? <laughs> yeah. Be careful what you wish for. But no, she was fine. Actually, she was a reputable agent. She was also a packager. And and for people who don't know, that's somebody who signs a contract with a publisher for a series of books. And then she's the one who puts together that series and does subcontracts with the authors to do them. Yeah. At one point, I was negotiating with my own agent. That's interesting. I'm glad you yeah. brought that point out because not everybody would know about that <laughs> yeah. aspect. And it's something, if that's not what you're interested in doing, then... So it was like, this is not really what I want. But anyway, the whole thing fell through and I found another agent who was really great. And then she left the agency and I stayed on at the agency. The publishing industry is, is constantly fluid. So here's my next bit of really good advice. And that is never burn a bridge. Yeah. Because people move around. And you never know when you're going to run into them again. In fact, the assistant to my old editor became my editor at a whole new house uh, oh later. Goodness. And if you'd been a very challenging author, that probably would have been a no-go. And I, I feel like it's something that I've heard a lot from successful authors that have been able to make a living and a lifestyle of being an author. It's really about relationships and partnerships and really good relationships. And we talk, I've talked to a lot of authors on the podcast about 
agents or publishers or even writers groups or critique groups where, you know, maybe they didn't work out and they had to fire their critique group and they couldn't work with anymore because there's a toxic individual in it. And it always reminds me of two things. A, as a writer, you have permission to be around people that make you feel like you're being successful and happy and are good and it's compatible. It's okay. You don't have to take abuse. (laughs) And B, it's about a true partnership and relationship. It's just for me, I feel like it would be like almost as close to a relationship as in marriage, but you're, it's a business relationship, but you're giving these people, your children to go out and shop around and you want to have that communication and connection with them so that they need to tell you something they can tell it nicely and we have that relationship. So I feel like that's what you just described is that you just never know. And if you don't, if you're not burning bridges, it's because you're good at relationships. I feel like it's it's true. And too, it's such a weird relationship because Mm -hmm. you're hiring them, Mm -hmm. but they are choosing you. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that writers forget is that the whole publishing industry treats writers mostly like surfs and yet we are the cog around which the whole industry revolves yeah so what you always have to remember is that you are not a surf you have a right to a certain amount of respect and decency and all these other kind of all these other things and and you should ask for those things and you should receive those things but it also means that you have to realize that it is also a really subjective industry. So if someone doesn't like your book, they just don't like your book. You can't make them like it. No, you know, and, 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 and it's mean, okay. And that doesn't mean the person that's going to love your book isn't just right around the corner. Exactly. <laughs> or And the thing is you want your agent to be the person who is loving your book, who wants it to succeed, mm-hmm. who's out there. Don't settle for somebody who's just, okay, it's okay. I think I can sell it. Settle for somebody who feels passionately about it. And if they don't, then find somebody who does. I've had several agents in my career. And as circumstances changed in my career, it meant that I had to seek different representation at different points in time. And I think you shouldn't be afraid to do that as, as your circumstances change. Nothing's static. I love it. I think it's great advice. So let's talk just a little bit before we get into this current book that we want to get into that you're going to read from. What kind of support groups are you involved in? Do you have, I know you talked about your critique partner, but are you involved or have you been involved in writer groups and things like that or associations? Yeah. When I, the, some of the best advice I ever got when I was telling my grandmother that I wanted to to be a writer. And, and she said to me, and I didn't know what to do or how to go about it. And she said, you need to join a group. There's a group in Seattle. You need to find them and join them. That's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, this is my grandma. I'm in Ohio. I'm visiting her in Ohio. And she says this to me and I'm like, okay. I immediately went home and looked in. There's like, there used to be a Northwest writers mm-hmm. handbook sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I went and looked. And at the time I was, I was, thinking about doing romance because I was reading it and I thought I could work in it. And so I found the local Romance Writers of America chapter and I joined it. And it was actually the best and most, it was a seminal decision. It was the best 
thing yeah. I could have done. Yeah. Because it was not only about, it taught me not only my craft, but it also put me in touch with a lot of people who knew the road that yeah. I needed to go on. And yeah. it was where I met my first agents. Oh. Uh, it took me to conferences. It, it, I met people who are authors who are still my friends today, who are completely supportive. I it got me involved in a critique group that I was a member of for 30 years and we still have dinner together every quarter and, and it's where I met my critique partner who's been my critique partner for 30 years so oh, beautiful I love those relationships that's so awesome and inspiring <laughs> yeah and you know and more recently I was a member of Seattle Seven Writers and I and that was also a great networking opportunity and not just a network opportunity, but an opportunity to really do good in the community and give back to the community. Yeah. From the Seattle 7, originally I had one or two of the authors that were originally from the Seattle 7. And they're like, oh, we can get you connected with some great authors. And they started giving me names. I'm like, these are the ones I was looking for because Seattle 7 eventually closed down and their website couldn't access a whole lot anymore. By the time the podcast I started, I'm like, I really want to talk to these authors, but I can't get them. <laughs> so it was a blessing. <laughs> yeah, it was a great group. It was a great group. And and I'm I understand why they, they it shut down, but I miss everybody. So yeah, I'm sure there's just so much time in the day to do things. I'm to the point of where I'm ready to start saying no to some things because you can say yes to so much and then you don't have time to write. And I've been struggling with that from day one because I started to really work hard on uh, my first story, my first book, get in a writer's group and start the podcast. And it became like competing. And I'm like, what? I want to write. I need to write, but I love my podcast. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So Megan, before we get started in the reading for my listeners now, my listeners love the reading. So I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Do you have one inspiration or is there just like this overall arch of inspiration for you? I just have to say, I just think the world is inspiring. I just think you just have to be open to everything. It's like I, I was telling my daughter the other day, just every day there's something interesting in the world. And if you can figure out what that is, if you can just lob onto that, then you're never going to be bored. And I guess that's just always how I have approached the world is just in that way, just being alert to anything that might happen. I love it. That's great inspiration. So let's go into the book that you're going to read from. So first, tell us the title, which one it is, and give us any of the backstory or history or character, anything you want before you jump in and read for us. And I'm going to go quiet because my listeners know I have to go on mute because the dogs might bark while you're reading. <laughs> and so I'll just listen away and I'll take us out at the end of the podcast when you're done. The name of this book is A Splendid Ruin, and it's set in um, San Francisco. The book takes place during the um, San Francisco earthquake of 1906. But the port part I'm going to read is from the very start, from chapter one. And it is right when the main character, Mae Kimball, arrives in San Francisco to stay with her um, aunt and uncle after her mother has tragically died. And so we have chapter one. 
When I arrived at the Knob Hill mansion belonging to my Aunt Florence and her husband, Jonathan Sullivan, it was still more than a year from its fate as a crumbling, smoldering ruin, and I was still naive enough to believe in the welcome I found there. My mother had died two months ago and left me abandoned and lonely. I thought I knew to trust only myself, but I underestimated the astonishment of white stone and three stories, of windows glinting in afternoon sunlight breaking through a veil of fog, of the fragrance of roses and horses and men's sweat blooming in the clammy, tangy air. Had I known what awaited me in that house, I would have done everything differently. But that day, I was too bedazzled by the men carrying chairs and boxes and crates up the marble steps and past the pillared portico to see the truth hidden by the Sullivan's money and inclusiveness. The driver hefted my suitcase to the crushed white stone of the drive. There will be a footman coming for it, he said, moving back to the horses. Al's expecting you. Al? I frowned, but the driver climbed aboard and drove off to the stables, leaving me standing uncertain amid the fuss. Mama had never said anything of her family having such wealth, not once in all our years of suffering. But then again, neither had she told me she had a sister. I should not be surprised. She'd kept so many secrets. But this, why had she said nothing of this? Perhaps she had not known of her sister's good fortune. I told myself that had to be the reason. I hadn't thought to see such a house in all of San Francisco, much less an entire neighborhood of them. The driver had called the area Knob Hill, and it was nothing but mansions, Gothic style and Beaux-Arts, turreted and terraced, gimcracked with all the embellishments money could buy, and each probably holding more rooms than the sum of those on my entire street in Brooklyn. In the 23 years of my life, I had dreamed of such houses, drawing their contents and imagining myself within them. But I'd never expected anything like this when I received the letter from the woman claiming to be my Aunt Florence, expressing her sorrow over Mama's death and inviting me to come live with her family in San Francisco. I cannot bear the thought of Charlotte's daughter alone in that terrible city. Please, you must come. The train ticket had been enclosed as if there was no question that I would agree, which I did. I had nothing to leave behind but a job as a shop girl selling gauze at Mrs. Beard's shop for ladies and a boarding house smelling of talc and mutton where I'd shared a room with my mother that I could not afford on my own. I'd been dazed from having to find another establishment and fearing an uncertain future. On the train to San Francisco, I had envisioned a hundred different things, another boarding house, a flat perhaps, or in my most elaborate scenarios, a small house or a brownstone. And now, here I was, and none of this felt the least bit real. Nervously, uncomfortably, I made my way through the moving men, past pillars carved with cupids embracing a coat of arms. I paused at the open door. Excuse me, miss, burly man pushed past with a crate of white roses. Their perfume engulfed me as I followed him into a foyer laid with rhomboid tiles in green and brown, pink and white. The ceiling reached two stories into a dome painted with angels. Unbelievable. The foyer, too, bustled with men unloading boxes and maids scurrying about. A huge golden-framed mirror with a velvet banquette was to my left. Beside it stood a gold and marble table where a filigreed, cloth-footed silver telephone crouched amid a riot of vases and salvers. I'd never seen a telephone so decorated. I'd no idea such a thing existed. It shuddered to life with a raucous ringing, and I jumped, startled. 
A hairy-looking Chinese man wearing a formal suit rushed into the foyer. He picked up the wooden-handled receiver and barked into it, Sullivan residence. It surprised me. There had been no Chinese in my old neighborhood, and the last thing I'd expected was to find one answering the phone in my aunt's house. The domestics I knew in Brooklyn were almost always Irish. I had never heard of anyone having a Chinese butler. When I stepped back, he noticed me and motioned for me to wait. No, he barked into the telephone. The order was for ten, not four. At the finish of the short conversation, he put the receiver into its cradle. You are Miss Kimball? His briskness and authority surprised me again. I nodded. The family has been expecting you. This way, miss. He turned on his heel so sharply that the braid trailing between his shoulder blades jumped. He led me past a curving set of stairs and down a hallway that branched every few feet in what seemed a dozen different directions before he stopped at an open doorway and announced, Miss Kimball has arrived. Excellent, pronounced an enthusiastic male voice. I stepped into a relentlessly lavish drawing room as a tall, slender man dressed in a well-tailored suit rose to meet me. His cropped beard was the same red gold as his oiled hair. Every bit of him was expertly turned out, so much so that I might have found him intimidating, if not for the warmth in his protuberant pale eyes and his hands outstretched in greeting. Miss Kimball, I'm Jonathan Sullivan, your Uncle Johnny. How pleased we are that you're here at last. He clasped my hands with a smile that further eased my nerves. We were so sorry to hear of your mother's passing. No one can replace her, of course, but I do hope we can help to ease her absence. I'm grateful that you sent for me, Uncle, and you must call me May, please. May, you'll want to meet your cousin. He stepped back, gesturing to a young woman almost hidden amid the gold-flocked wallpaper, ornate woodwork, and bibelots crowding every surface. When I saw her, there was no noticing anything else. I'm Goldie. She got to her feet with a grace and poise I envied. From that first moment, I was dangerously spellbound. Her smile made me forget I'd ever been lonely. I had never met anyone who matched a name as perfectly as did my cousin. Her blue tea gown was the color of her eyes and cut to show off her fashionable hourglass figure. Her blonde hair was artfully pompadoured in the style featured in all the latest magazines. The electric light glaring off the wallpaper haloed her, making her an angel to match the hordes of painted and porcelain ones decorating the house. Uncle Johnny said, why look at the two of you, a perfect match. I've no doubt at all that you will become fast friends. Goldie enfolded me in a jasmine-scented embrace. How wonderful that we found you. You look so like family that I think I would have known you on the street. It was an exaggeration, but a kind one. Goldie was about my age, or perhaps a bit younger, but there any similarity ended. My cousin looked more like my mother than did I. Mama had been beautiful, too, and I'd often despaired at my unremarkable brown eyes and hair and sallow skin. Now I felt my lack even more and it didn't help that I was dust and travel stained, or that my sleepless nights must be reflected on my face. I looked around for the woman I'd come 3,000 miles to meet. And Aunt Florence? My uncle and cousin exchanged a quick glance. Uncle Johnny said, she wished to be here to meet you, I'm afraid, but she has a headache, Goldie put in. Oh, I tried not to betray my disappointment. I had so many questions for this aunt I'd never met. My mother's secrets, the mysteries of her life, of mine. 
But that afternoon, I believe there was plenty of time to discover those things. After all, I'd only just arrived. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I want to know more about May <laughs> And Golden, what a great name for her cousin. Beautiful. So well done. Okay, it's going on my reading list. So listeners, I hope you were intrigued as well. And Megan, as we're recording this, we're thinking forward. So this will be coming out around the new year, close to the new year. Tell us what you might know of, knowing that there could be changes because world events <laughs> may be coming up front for you in the new year. I'm working on another book, always working on something else. And that is, and, and it's, I'm moving forward in the century. I'm finished, I'm working on something set in the fifties, which is interesting. I've never done anything like that before. So we'll see things change, but we'll, yeah. we'll see. But other than that, just hoping that the next year is better than this year because yeah. it not be? we're all needing that. That's right. Listeners, if you loved Megan, definitely find her on social media. She's given them all to me. They'll be in show notes. So find her and follow her, buy her books. If you end up meeting her face-to-face because the world has come out of hiding again, let her, and you heard her on the podcast, let her know. We always love to hear where we have met the authors and it's so much fun to hear it's from the podcast. Megan, thank you so much for being here. And when that next book's out after this new year, let's bring you back on. We can talk about that one. Great. Thank you. It was fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.